Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Cognitive Dissidence. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm a partner and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Joining us today on the podcast is Peter Mayer. Uh, he is a professional engineer and urban water expert and is the principal and founder of Water Demand Management. For more than 25 years, he has focused on urban water management, water use patterns, assessing the impact of water rate structures, and a whole lot more. Uh, water is one of the most, I think, undercovered geopolitical topics in the world. It's one that I plan to be focusing on a lot more going forward and that I've been thinking about now for for a long time. And Peter was very nice to make some time for us to talk. Not, I mean, we talked a little bit about US-Mexico relations in terms of water, but really about the Colorado River Basin, what's happening there in the Western part of the United States and what that means um, for even competition between states in the US when it comes to water in general. Uh, hopefully Peter will be willing to come back on many more times. Unfortunately, I think this is gonna be an issue that is not going away. We recorded this podcast on Friday, July 29th. Uh, I think we will definitely get it up before the August 16th decision about the Colorado River Basin from the U.S. government. Uh, but it may be a, a week or two uh, out before we get it posted. So if anything gets overtaken by events, please uh, give us the benefit of the doubt. Last but not least, if I could, I would play Alan Jackson's Chattahoochee throughout the entirety of this intro, but for copyright reasons, I can't. So if you really want the full experience, go to YouTube or Spotify and play Alan Jackson Chattahoochee and listen to this, the sweet dulcet sounds of this bass voice introducing you to what I hope is a podcast episode you all enjoy. Uh, Jacob at Cognitive.Investments if you want to talk at all about what we do at CI or about the podcast itself. Otherwise, without further ado, um, here's Peter. Cheers. See you out there. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for taking some time to come and talk to us about, I mean, literally probably the most important thing in the entire world, which is water. It's really nice to have you here. Thank you so much, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. Jacob, I don't understand why people mix up Jacob, the Jacob and oh the Jason. Shit. Let's take here. that again. Stop. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I, I, it actually, I'm curious whether there's, I need it a just linguist. Flew right off. You know, maybe it's because there's the S that I saw at the, you know, it's like. But it's, so it's not just you. Like whenever anybody gets my name wrong, it's always Jason. Oh, Jason. I, I, I need like a linguist. You start with J. J is like, oh God, anyway. I guess so. Um, All right, well, this is off to a great start. It's off to a great start. I always thought, well, Jason was the Red Power Ranger, so he was cool. Now I'm showing my age. Jacob. Um, But anyway, water, the most, I mean, literally the most important thing probably in the universe. Um, I'm I'm here in New Orleans where (laughs) we have, I don't want to say too much water, where water is not a problem or water is a problem when there's too much of it, not because there's a lack. You're in Boulder, Colorado, and the reason... I wanted to have you on. I mean, there's lots of reasons, and I would like water to actually be one of the topics that this podcast takes up because I think there isn't enough coverage about it. Um, but last month, a federal water official 
said that water levels in the Colorado River were so low that either the states involved, so there's six different states, well, we can talk, we can go through that in a little bit, that depend on the Colorado River for water and for electricity production, about 40 million people depending on it. If the states can't figure out how to lower their consumption by two to million, uh, two to four million acre feet next year, then the US, the US Bureau of Reclamation will come in and impose water cuts on the states, period. That was last month. And that stopped me in my tracks and got me paying a lot more attention to this issue. And a mutual friend hooked us up and said we should talk about this. So that's why we're here. Um, if we're starting just with the Colorado River, um, where do we start? I mean, how did we get to this place or how did we get to this moment in the first place to where there are such dire water shortages? I mean, I don't want to I don't want to say seemingly seemingly out of nowhere because someone like you has been focusing on this for a long time, but it feels a little sudden. How, how did we get here? Well, thank you so much for having me, Jacob. It's a pleasure to be here. And so how do we get here? Well, first of all, you got to understand, you know, the Colorado River starts in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado and in Wyoming and Utah, and then flows through the desert uh, all the way down to the Gulf of California, which is between Mexico, uh, you know, that, that, that strip of, of water um, between Baja California and Mexico. Um, when it was first explored uh, by, by Westerners, John Wesley Powell, he, one of his immediate comments was that this, you know, this river will never support, you know, a massive population. It's just not that big. Um, so, so we're, we're starting from the standpoint of this is the resource we have, the Colorado River. So then what happens is it is developed and it is a, it, over the last a uh, hundred years or for hundred plus years that the river has been aggressively developed uh, with, um, you know, a series of dams, uh, including two, you know, two of the largest uh, reservoirs in the United States, Lake Powell and Lake Mead. Um, and, you know, which stores millions and millions and millions of gallons of water. And the, as part of the, the development of the Colorado River, we have the creation in the 1920s of the Colorado River Compact, which divided up the river between the seven basin states. Uh, the three upper basin states, which are Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah, and then the four lower basin states, New Mexico, which actually gets some Colorado River water, hmm. um, Nevada, Arizona, and of course, California. So those are really the key players. But guess who was totally forgotten in in the, the compact division was, well, Mexico was included to some extent, but they completely neglected tribes, uh, Native American tribes uh, along the river who had an established long-term claim. So uh, some of those tribal rights have been resolved, some have not, um, but the river was divided up. And so they forgot a bunch of things and then they divided it up based on a measurement of about 16 or 17 million acre feet per year. And that's a lot of water. And it turns out that that was based on some pretty wet years. Uh, they, they sort of cherry picked or, or, you know, happily cherry picked. I don't know what you want to describe it. Uh, the, but the, they selected a time, historical time record uh, for the hydrology, which which enabled them to consider a large volume of water to, to, to be divided up. 
and then we, you know, went for, uh, henceforth. So then what happens over time is, is the lower basin in particular grows into its allocation. And so the lower basin actually began and exceeds its allocation and began until finally the feds asked California to stop uh, over overusing. You also have a Supreme Court fight between Arizona and California, um, which is eventually establishes California as the senior right and Arizona as the junior right. Um, and then um, you also have the upper basin also growing, but never using their full allocation. They're, they're, you know, so the upper basin has always had this view, hey, we still got more. We've never used our full allocation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that so and then we proceed into our current hydrology, uh, you know, the last 20 years. So the lakes were actually full. Both the, uh, the, the uh, you know, all the reservoirs were full um, as late as I don't, don't quote me. I think it's around 2000, you know, yeah. uh, so it was around, you know, within, you know, within, within uh, certainly within our lifetimes. Uh, and then you know, the, we essentially entered this this massive dry dry period of drought, uh, which has de- reduced the snowpack, reduced the runoff. At the same time that people were were taking more water, also, and then that has then depleted the lakes. Now, some people saw this coming a long time, but uh, I think for most of the country, it is a surprising wake up call how quickly Lake Powell and Lake Mead have depleted down to a level where Lake Mead, uh, you know, is, is 145 feet above the level which, uh, which it will stop being able to generate hydroelectric power. <laughs> so it's it, that, you know, and, and that in itself, stopping generating hydro, uh, electricity will be a significant, have significant impact for the cost of electricity, for how electricity is generated in the West. Uh, so you know we're, we're we're it's it's a significant event and it's a climate change uh, event, um, but it's also a human caused event because it's a, it's the result of human planning essentially like planning to use X amount of water uh, and and Mother Nature essentially not providing that amount of water. Yeah, I'll I'll put a link for for listeners to a bunch of different things in the description to this podcast. One will be the sort of NASA satellite images that they've made available of Lake Mead in particular, and they, it has the thing where you can scroll over and see where it was in 2000 and where it was in 2022. And you got the years exactly right. To your point, in 2000, looks fine, looks great, even that deep midnight blue color, and everything's filled in. And now you look at it, it's like positively frightening and anemic and there's also i I wanted to there's this idea that the um new york times reported this and i think nasa had this had this too but that it's the region is is facing its worst drought in 12 centuries they've apparently looked at tree rings and decided that this is the driest that the climate has been since 800 uh in ce that's what those of us who went to jewish day school (laughs) say is right the common era the common era uh it's 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 stuck in my head um is, I'm going to ask a fairly naive and, and stupid question to tee you up. Is there a chance that this reverses itself, that we get years of plenty after years of drought and then it fills up even more? Um, because my understanding of climate change is that we get periods of volatility. So things will get bad and then things will, will get good. Is there any reason to think that, the, that nature is going to bail us out here? Or is there something with the hydrology that is basically saying, well, even if you got more rain, the current system's not going to work? This is a tough one 
because you know people people really want to hear that there's a chance you know you're telling <laughs> me there's a chance um and i am telling i don't want to say there isn't some chance because you know mother you know with nature mother nature is very unpredictable um but the outlook that we're seeing right now is extreme it's more more dry uh certainly for the for the next year at least and beyond that it's really hard to to know um could we have another wet period yes we certainly could have another wet period the problem is it it took long time to fill up Lake Powell and Lake Mead when we had really good hydrology and when, when we didn't have a lot of uses on the river. Hmm. Uh, and so, to, you know, so the chances of refilling the lakes, even with good hydrology, are very limited simply because the demands on the river will be so great uh, that, you know, whatever flows in is, is unlikely to be stored. That's why the cut level of cuts that they're asking for between 2 million and 4 million acre feet. Now think about that because I mean, really what that's saying is that we think this river is only producing maybe 10 or 11 million acre feet uh, mm -hmm. uh, as that's the level of cuts that, that, that they're, and if that's really what it's only going to produce and they still need to leave, I don't know however, how much they can leave in the lake each year. Uh, to try to preserve or restore some lake level, um, it, it becomes a math problem. This is also forgive a naive question, or but I'm 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 learning from the ground up, and I'm hoping that my listeners will appreciate that I'm willing to ask um, basic and more elementary questions of an expert like you. Um, let's say that the worst happened and it did go to Deadpool status, or if, or if it went even below that, is is there is there something is when it comes to hydrology, is there a point of no return with some of these lakes and rivers? Like, do you get low enough to where it doesn't matter anymore? It can't regenerate itself um, if you do have good policy and smart usage? Or, or, or can you actually start to repair some of this damage if you are intentional from a policy perspective about being better about usage and all those other things? Well, it's interesting you say regenerative because in some ways... The, the the shrinking of the lake is returning the river more to its more natural state. I mean, the, hmm. the lake was an artificial creation of, of human beings by putting a dam on that river. Uh, so is it a, is there a possibility of restoring the the lake levels? I think is more really hmm. uh, you know uh, it, you know and and it it could happen, but it, it's gonna it would require you know extremely favorable hydrology and massive demand reductions uh, at the same time, I think. Um, in terms of what, let's, let's imagine what happens. So let's say, the first thing is that they might choose to say, let's, let's keep only one lake. So they'll say, let's, let's say we keep Lake Mead. So they'll let Lake Powell, they'll let all, water, all the water that they can out of, go out of Lake Powell. They'll try to fill up Lake Mead and they won't try to hold water back in Lake Powell. They'll try to move it as much as they can down to Lake Mead. To, mm -hmm. to keep that lake up. I mean, that, that is a possibility that has been proposed by some, um, nobody knows if, you know, if, if that would work or not, or, you know, whether, whether water could flow even successfully. One of the questions is whether enough, if Lake Powell, if the level drops below a certain point, can even seven and a half million acre feet, which is the requirement uh, to the lower basin, can that amount be delivered? every year you know just physically uh through through the infrastructure 
So, so there, there are that. So there, there are huge questions related to that. If Lake Mead, if either of these lakes though drops below um, some of these levels, many, many people's water supply is endangered, and and we have to change the way that they get water. So Page, Arizona, for instance, when Lake Powell drops below a certain point, they will no longer be able to withdraw water. Uh, so they would need to, you know, stick a hose in and you know establish some sort of a pumping system or some you know temporary. Uh, but more likely to become permanent. This is why Las Vegas uh, saw this coming and they dug a tunnel underneath Lake Mead and they created essentially a bathtub drain at the bottom of Lake Mead, which is which is where they can withdraw water so mm -hmm. that even as the lake levels drop, 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 they will still be able to withdraw water from Lake Mead, um, <laughs> even, even uh, dead, far beyond Deadpool. Um, I also want to tee you up to, I think one of the things that's been talked about recently, or I think last year, the Arizona state legislature was urging Congress again to look at diverting water via a pipeline from the Mississippi River all the way to the Colorado River, which as somebody who lives on the Mississippi River, um, I mean, first of all, haven't we done enough to the Mississippi River? Like, I feel like my house is going to get washed out one day as soon as river control fails, but we're going to build a and I don't know, I, I think, but the U.S. even did a study. So they spent the money to do a study, apparently, in 2012, I was reading it, and concluded it would take 30 years and something like $15 billion. Um, but it, 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 it makes me a little concerned, though, because it, it feels like we're still casting about for fanciful solutions rather than actually dealing with the reality in front of us, which is the amount of population that is there cannot handle the water resources that are there. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it, Jacob. The the uh, you know, you, there's a lot of funny expressions you can use. You can call it, you know, grasping at long straws. <laughs> you know, far-fetched water. Uh, that's really what we're talking here. Um, the the you know, it's not that there isn't enough water in the Mississippi necessarily, um, but the pumping and the energy that would be required to move the water um uh con consistently would and, and would be tremendous and you know it may, perhaps if we had an unlimited supply of clean energy you know um, then this might be something to be thought about um if expense you know if you had all the money in the world but you know the the truth is we don't have all the money we don't have well, the energy would make our our climate situation even worse because we would be burning more fossil fuels to pump the water the much more logical solution is if there's not enough water in arizona for those people those people should move somewhere where there's more water and that is what has happened throughout human history as different civilizations have confronted water shortage ultimately populations have to move to where there is sufficient supply yeah well human history has never met americans i guess uh for better and for worse um we are humans believe it or not yeah we're we're, yeah. we're going to be susceptible to all the same forces that that uh, impacted all other civilizations and resource shortages is our is, is one that and water shortages is one I mean, even in the American West, I mean, the, you know, that we have the Mesa Verde is a wonderful example, uh, you know, of, of uh, the ancient Pueblo people, uh, you know, built these beautiful cities and then had to abandon them. And they essentially think it was the drought. Maybe it was that drought from 800 or so that you were talking hmm. about that they measured. 
Yeah. Um, I want to hit it at a little bit of a geopolitical level before we start talking about relations between states, which is also a geopolitical level in and of itself. Um, but the Rio Grande is also, I guess, part of this same general environment. I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It's I don't part of the same system. Believe it or not, the Rio Grande is augmented with water from the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. I mean, these basins are connected. The Colorado provides uh, extra water that goes flows into the Rio Grande Basin, uh, and that flows into the South Platte Basin, which uh, which uh, then eventually would make it uh, to the Missouri and the Mississippi. Um, and, you know, and and uh, I'm sure I'm neglecting another one, but but it, it's uh, it really is heavily used and exported um, in in the upper basin. Um, so so it's the the rio grande though is a, is an even drier part and and has an even more vulnerable source uh because it's the southern the southern rockies which which have got been getting less and less and less snow i think mm-hmm. the the rio grande dried up in albuquerque uh just this week for the first time in 40 years and hmm. um of course it, it reforms below albuquerque as their wastewater treatment plant effluent is uh Put back into the river. the 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 irony is that Albuquerque pumps groundwater essentially, you know, flushes it, de- flushes it, and then treats it, and then puts it back into the Rio Grande. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that that makes my brain hurt. But I sorry, but this... no, no, that's that's why you're here, and the, my listeners' brains need to hurt as well about this particular issue. But I was also, I mean. Um, the famous Porfirio Diaz, who's a former Mexican dictator, quote, is poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. Um, <laughs> I was I, I was doing a little bit of research on the Mexico-U.S. water relationship. And I actually remember right when I started my own consulting firm, um, so, sort of one of the first things that happened after COVID was this clash between Mexican farmers in Chihuahua and Mexican soldiers because the United States and Texas Governor Greg Abbott was saying that Mexico owes us water that they haven't given us. And the farmers in Mexico were like, well, we don't want to send the Texans water. We'd like to keep the water. And and they were preventing it. And apparently it all goes back to a 1944 treaty where basically the U.S. makes a deal with Mexico where it's like we get a lot of the water, you get a little bit, and that's it. But one of the stats that I I found in there, to, to your point earlier, I mean, at that time, apparently the 1940s was also a very wet time period, which is when that treaty came through. Um, and the population of, of both Mexico and the U.S. on on those sides, all all in all these different basin environments, were was 560,000, and now it's 10 million. Um, and so now it's not just. I mean, it does become, I think, a geopolitical issue here between the United States and Mexico, because it's one thing for the federal government to come in and say, "Hey, guys, if you're not going to compromise with each other." We're going to make decisions for you. But two Mexican states also get water from the Colorado River. So is the Bureau of Reclamation going to go to Mexico City and say, hello, President AMLO, uh, if you can't make a compromise with us, we'll also be making decisions for you. I mean, that seems to be a that that looks like it could be a major conflict, I think, between Mexico and the United States going forward. It could be. Um, it's probably more likely that it'll be worked out financially. And I would imagine that that will be how it's worked out with, you know, agricultural users. So, I mean, the, the, so let's talk about the 2 million to 4 million acre feet of cuts that they're mm-hmm. looking for in the Colorado River. And where, and how are we going to get there? And, and what, so first of all, the states are in the process of negotiating right now, and they have a deadline of August 16th. 
um, to reach agreement on how to get those, those cuts um, themselves. Hmm. So that, that, that the, the best solution would be the states come to agreement and present a plan to, to achieve those cuts. And the thing is, it's not just for this year. The Bureau has said that they need to plan for this for the next four years. Um, and the, I think the, the, what's really lurking in people's mind is, is this permanent, you know, is this, is this, you know, is this, and I think many people are trying to get, you know, people, uh, others along around the basin to accept that, that this could well be permanent and that we could be looking at a basin that only produces 11 million acre feet or maybe less even annually and that, that that's that's more the, the, the real uh, what we need to deal with but it we're still we have a lot of uh people who are who have not come to any level of acceptance around um something along those lines so that states have until the 16th to to reach agreement the likelihood of them doing that is probably not too great let's just say yeah. i think it's much more likely that the the federal government is going to have to come in and, and mandate cuts. Now, they clearly have the ability to mandate the cuts in the lower basin. Uh, and most of the cuts have probably come from agriculture. Um, the Imperial Irrigation District in Southern California holds the, you know, the one of the largest shareholders of water. I, you know, I think that the only question is, you know, will they be compensated? If they are compensated, how much will it be? Will it, is it like one-time money? Is it permanent? That, you know, how, how does that all work out? Um, then will they be able to curtail water from the upper basin if it comes to it? That is a real question. I mean, certainly the last year they mandated releases from upper basin reservoirs that they controlled, like Flaming Gorge and Blue Mesa. So it's possible that they could, you know, say, okay, you know, maybe we can't tell you to do X, Y, or Z, but we can release water from these reservoirs. I mean, so there's some ways, you know, they, they may have some way of, but that could in itself could stimulate uh, the legal action from the upper basin to say what, you know, against the federal government. I mean, the, the upper basin has, a, has an argument. I mean, their argument is, we, you know, the, the compact says that we had to deliver seven and a half million acre feet, you know, on average. And we've done that. We've never not done that. You know, we've always delivered that. We sometimes delivered a lot more than that. Um, and so, and we've never used our full amount. So why is it our problem up here? You know, uh, and, and, you know, look, we're looking down at you guys who are essentially overusing that, that have caused the problem. So, I mean, and that, you know, so that, that's essentially the, 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 this bargaining position that they're starting from uh, in, in the upper basin. Um, and they're also saying that you, the, you, the federal government, do, don't actually have the legal authority to curtail us the same way that you do to the lower basin. So, so walk me through that then. And, and maybe this gets into some of your other experience in, in different water conflicts in the United States. But so... Um, let's say for the sake of argument, the lower basin has no choice. It has to do what the federal government says. But if the upper basin challenges that, what happens next? Do they get to keep taking the water until the appeal process gets resolved all the way up into the Supreme Court? Are they supposed to stop the water until the appeal process is started? Like, how, like talk to me a little bit about the mechanics of how that works. <sighs> well, this, 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 is a, this would be real. This would be a lawyer's uh, 
can I say wet dream? Uh, you know, <laughs> yes, because you I mean, the, the, the Supreme Court's cases are very rare and they take years and they uh, make law firms a lot of money. Um, the it's it'd be very interesting. So let's say the 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 states don't reach agreement. Well, 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 let's let's look at the most the most typical way that the conflict might be. The most typical way a conflict happens is one state says to another state, like California said to Arizona, you know, we don't like what you're doing, you know, and and, and you sue them. Or or what happened more recently between Florida and Georgia. Um, over completely different different river basin, but they sue each other, and that case goes to the Supreme Court, and it's a state case between the states, and and then there's a trial before a special master and a whole and a whole thing. But but what we're looking at the Colorado River is somewhat different because now the federal government, the Bureau of Reclamation, the Department of Interior, is coming in to say we, the federal government, are going to mandate the cuts. So let's say a state, maybe Colorado or Utah or somewhere else in the upper basin doesn't like what, you know, the federal government says are the cuts. They can sue the federal government. Now, would that go to the Supreme Court right away, like a interstate conflict, or would it maybe then go to a federal court? That's, I'm not actually sure who would, what court would have jurisdiction in the, the fight between a state and the federal government. Mm -hmm. um, the same way, I mean, it probably would have to go to the Supreme Court also. Um, but it might have a different path than if it's a conflict between two states. Well, but do you know that if, like, while we're waiting to, like, while the whole process is going on, what would waters... happen while we wait? Yeah, that is, you know, I mean, the, the, typically, like, it's the court that decides. It's kind of like, do I does the guy go to stay in jail or do I, you know, give him bail and let him go free? You know, it's like. Do I allow the federal government to mandate these cuts? You know, probably that's what you think they would do because of the crisis, you know, and then and then, you know, the objection would have to go through. But maybe they would, you know, if the upper the state made a compelling case, they would say, OK, the state could keep using the water as they were. And you federal government can go pound sand until, you know, you the, the, the case is proven. I mean, yeah. I, that's that is a it's. Anytime you get to a court situation with water, it, there is tremendous uncertainty. And that is why it is always, always, always better to try to settle it without taking it to court and, and to reach in some sort of an agreement that where the, all the parties have some buy-in rather than, than the, uh, a judge who is not a water expert and may not understand the situation the same way um, makes the decision. I'm imagining in my head a judge setting bail for the water at 1 million acre feet or something a year, and then, and then they can go forward. Um, but I think that's a nice segue into, so we're ta we've talked about the Colorado and doom and gloom and, and some things that are more abstract and some uncertainties, but you've had um, some significant experience. You already alluded to it in this water conflict between my, my birth state of Georgia uh, and the state of Florida, neither one of which strike me as particularly water stressed, but as an example of interstate water conflict just within the U.S. itself. So why don't you walk us through um, that particular case study and maybe we can tease out some implications or lessons for thinking about water in general in the U.S.? Sure, sure. Well, I can tell you that. So I was hired by the state of Georgia to be their expert in municipal and industrial water efficiency for the case of the U.S. Supreme Court when they were sued by the state of Florida. And the, the case itself was not, uh, uh, it was completely different than what we've been talking about in the Colorado River, because it wasn't about, 
you know, is there enough water for people? This is actually a case that, that was about, is there enough water for oysters and for fisheries? Hmm. Um, the, the river in Florida that, that is the Apalachicola, and this is a river that flows through the panhandle of Florida. The river itself originates, though, way up north in, in Georgia, and, uh, and actually then also, again, just south of Atlanta. So there's two different rivers. The, um, there's the Chattahoochee River, which starts up north of Atlanta, and then there's the Flint River, which starts, I think it's right under the airport. It might even be the headwaters, technically. Um, but then those two rivers flow south, eventually join at Lake Seminole, which is an artificial lake with a, with a dam uh, that's right at the border between Florida and Georgia. And then they release water from that dam, Lake Seminole, into uh, the Appalachia, what is then becomes the Appalachicola River, and that river flows through the Panhandle into Appalachicola Bay, and and Appalachicola Bay is a prize oyster fishery uh, for for Florida, and um, and you know it's, it's an important cultural place, beautiful location, you know a lot a lot of things that 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 happen there. So what happened? Well. What happened was that in 2010, we had the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, mm. and there was a and there was a threat to that oyster fishery, and so there was there was actually a, a, a sort of a salvage harvest. What they did, so they tried they 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 tried to say we better get what we can before this oil spill destroys everything. They over they overfished the 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 uh, the fishery at that point. Um, then a couple of years later, when when the, the the fishery was depleted, the they decided to sue Georgia, and the, the Florida essentially what what you know I would argue was a politically motivated lawsuit uh, from from the governor Rick Scott, uh, who's now the senator Rick Scott, but for whatever reason you know they believe that they might have a chance of winning, and they've been in conflict with Georgia for many years over water, so they decided to take it all the way to the Supreme Court. And so they sued them over Georgia's water use, basically saying that because they weren't getting enough fresh water coming into this estuary, the, the, the fish and the oysters were dying. But they specified the oysters. The key thing was the oysters. They, in court, they tried to say a bunch of other things were damaged, but they never really made, made the case. The oysters are the only species they really presented any evidence about, you know, related to salinity and things like that. So the, the case itself, though, represented to the state of Georgia an existential threat to their entire water supply. I mean, the, the Apalachicola and the Flint Rivers are the source of water for uh, Atlanta and all of metropolitan Atlanta and then flowing down to, to many a uh, number of other cities uh, into, into southern Georgia and also Georgia agriculture in, mm -hmm. in the south. And, and so... That the the you know Georgia took this extremely seriously. You know both sides you know have the hired the absolute top legal teams and you know and then they both bring in experts from you know all over the country to um, basically duke it out over over this this case. So I brought got brought in by Georgia to to help them to defend essentially the municipal and urban water use in in Atlanta. Um, and and to examine the, that water use history 
And eventually what we were able to show is how much the water use had come down and, and how, frankly, progressive a lot of the policies, water, the, the, the urban water management policies in Georgia had been um, mandating efficient fixtures even before the federal government had done it. They were one of the first states to require water loss control and, and mandatory leak audits for water systems. And it had a real impact. You can see the, 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 you know, the, the declining trend in overall water use and in per capita water use. So the story was very good. The other thing that's key, that was a key thing for the, that I had to explain was that most of the water that's used in, in a place like Atlanta is not used outdoors. It's actually, they have much higher indoor water use. Most mm. of that water then ends up back in the wastewater treatment system and then back into the river. Um, and so it's not really consumed the same way that that water is in the West, the same way where you pull it out. And if you dump it on a landscape or a farm, it never makes it back to the river. Indoor use is much more of a pass through. Um, hmm. you know, as it is treated and put back, as we talked about earlier with Albuquerque. Yeah. Um, and so in Georgia, they, they, they actually intentionally don't practice a lot of water reuse because they understand the importance of putting that water back in and keeping the river as whole as possible for the next user downstream. It's a, it's so, a little, anyways, th yeah. th th there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance for me because I'm, I'm not used to Georgia being at the front or the the forefront of anything, so I'm I'm glad to hear that my my birth state is is uh, is leading the well, charge at least on this particular issue. Yeah, the, an, an urban conservation. Now, I think the the pumping, uh, the agricultural pumping, was was the weaker part of Georgia's case. But even in that one, the Florida was never able to prove or connect the pumping, uh, the you know the Georgia's agricultural water use with the the depletion of water, and the 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 it really came down to what the minimum flow releases were, um, which are, which turns out to be five thousand cfs, the minimum flow release from the from that dam into the Apalachicola. Now in the western United States, five thousand cfs is a massive amount of water. Uh, so the fact that 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 you know that that that, that was what what uh, you know it wasn't somehow not enough. Uh, you know, is kind of a, 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 a cognitive dissonance for, for water engineers in the West. But ultimately, what happened was, you know, after an eight-year process uh, with, with this case and, and a five-week trial before a special master, two, and, then, and then two different special masters, actually, ultimately, uh, the case was found unanimously in favor of Georgia. Um, and, and they basically said, Florida, you didn't prove your case. Um, you didn't show, you know, you didn't prove to us that, you know, it was Georgia's water use that has caused this injury, you know, and, you know, we need to have, you know, it needs to be beyond a reasonable doubt for us to essentially do what amounts with takings, you know, like, you know, you're taking from one state to another and you're damaging the economy of, of Georgia. And that was the other thing that was very persuasive. The economy of Georgia that relied on the water was massive billions and billions of billions of dollars the value of the oyster fishery in the Apalachicola Valley was estimated at 10 million dollars a year so some somebody said that the i think one expert said that the the, the economy of the Hartsfield Jackson airport which is the Atlanta airport of in of itself was larger than the entire panhole handle of florida huh. so in an economic balancing like if they were going to say okay well so let's say we are going to carve up this water 
who win, who gets who's more. I mean, Georgia is was like it, you know, was hugely different, massively different, you know. So that, that that was also added to their decision just to say, you know, you didn't make the case. There's no way we're gonna, you know, damage this other state. And so that's the same kind of thinking, though, that will come into play in the Colorado River. If two states get into conflict, if the states get in conflict with the feds, at some point, a judge or somebody is going to look, is somebody any damaged here? Who's being damaged? And, and you know, how, how should this water be carved up? Yeah. Do, do you have a... Before I pick up that point, do you know what happened to the oyster fisheries on the Appalachia? I mean, they came back. They've actually done better. They have actually done a bit better. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's an endangered fisheries, but there are many reasons for it, including a lot of uh, the practices of, of Florida, of uh, dredging, and, and it's a whole complicated story. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the, it, and, and also in, in, in wet years, you know, as long as there isn't a drought, they're going to get plenty of flow. From yeah. the uh, the the from from the dam, so the the operational agreement that they have now, as long as there is sufficient uh, water, there's not going to be a problem. And you know, it, it's only really in the drought years that that it, it will be a problem. Uh, you know, that, that for the for the fishery potentially. Yeah. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. So, but applying that to what's happening um, on the Colorado. I mean, I guess on the one hand, you have here we have multiple states. So I guess you could get multiple states trying to gang up on each other or say, hey, this is all Arizona's fault. So you have that sort of dynamic. Um, but then also, I mean, Georgia and Florida, I guess it's, you know, it's it's trying to prove injury. But isn't another, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the other sort of really difficult things with the Colorado is that we're talking about water usage and every one of those states has completely different rules about how to use the different water and what you can do with it. Um, and I don't know how how much the federal government can intervene to tell those states, well, you have to do like, I mean, if the water is theirs, I don't like, does the federal government have control to actually go in? And I, that, that seems like a gray line to me. I mean, it's it, right. it seems like it's going to be a much more, I mean, if, if that took eight years and everything that you're talking about, like, man, how, like, maybe we could build that pipeline from the Mississippi River in, in the amount of time. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. The, um, the... I mean, and the last Supreme Court case on the Colorado River took 15 years. So the, you know, everybody thought, the thing was always that if there was going to be a Supreme Court case on the Colorado, it was going to be the lower basin suing the upper basin because they hadn't delivered seven and a half million acre feet per year. Somehow, you know, the compact had been violated because the lower basin wasn't getting the water that they were promised in the compact. But that's not really what's happened. So instead, what now looks like might be more the case would be some of like the upper basin suing either the lower basin or maybe the federal government, perhaps, um, if they are curtailed, you know, uh, in some way, because saying that, you know, this is wrong. We, you know, we, we haven't done anything wrong. It's not our problem. Why are you why are you punishing us? I mean, that would essentially be the argument. So that's that, and that's the balancing. It's it's it, it's kind of flipped the 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 script on on where how people thought the conflict in Colorado might play out, and what you know, part of it is because of the history, which which there has been a Supreme Court case in the lower base, and we had California uh, versus Arizona. So so there is already is an understanding of where, where the priorities lie. Yeah, Nevada's claim is very small. 
um, and you know, and they and they've always taken less than their than their claim, uh, you know, stated amount anyway. So they, Nevada actually has has play, been able to play an important intermediary role. Because their their claim to the river gets them a seat on at the table, but volumetrically it's so small um, that that they're not you know it's like not there you know you could cut them off and it doesn't you know it doesn't solve your problem at all type of thing. Um, so 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 they can con even if they contribute you know ten percent, it's a drop literally a drop in the bucket compared to what what really needs to be saved. Yeah, the the other bit of this that we've kind of touched on, but really not kind of focused on that much is just, I mean, it's not just that there are, I mean, and it's not just, there are 40 million people that we're talking about here whose access to water, whose, um, you know, I mean, that's a big deal if they're going to lose access to water, but there's also remarkably a lot of agriculture in this part yes. of the United yeah, States. Yeah, a lot of food, food, that, you know, so that, that fills grocery stores, and then a lot of animal food and animal fodder that um, feeds you know, the, the meat that we eat, and then also that some of which gets exported. So if you want to start looking, I think anything that gets exported ought to be, seems like the obvious place to start. Um, you know, that puts a value on the product rather than maybe on the land or, you know, I mean, there, in, in other ways, other ways to think about it might be, well, what would be the most advantageous water to, you know, to essentially not to use? Um, so you know there, there's the balancing act and then and then ultimately it may be who is willing to you know be paid for uh, not to use their water um, and and then ultimately perhaps it will be who are they capable of cutting off um, so the, the 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 big question, well, you know, not the big question, a big question is the compensation, and you know, so if you think about, it, let's say it's two and a half million acre feet of water that we have to save, and so let's say that they wanted to pay people, you know, to you know, so you're you're not going to get this water, but at least we're going to pay you for it, you know, well, for every hundred bucks, you know, two and a half million. Uh, you know, that, 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 you know, you get to 250 million at a hundred dollars an acre foot at, which is too low, honestly, 200 to $250 an acre foot is probably more of the going rate. And I've heard tell that some places we're talking more four or 500. So then you're up to a billion pretty quick just for one year. Now, what if you had to buy the water forever? What if you say, okay, you know, the, really we need two and a half million acre feet and it's, it's going away. You're, you're never going to be able to use it again. We're going to just buy it off of you. Um, then you're probably talking more in the neighborhood of $50,000 an acre foot. I don't know. You know, this, they could vary up and down the river, you know, what, what it ultimately is. In Colorado, it goes for more than that in some places. But, but let's just say that, that it was $50,000, which is a lot of money for, for uh, an acre foot. Um, then you get it to something like 150 billion. I mean, it, it's 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 astronomical. I'm not sure that they can print the money fast enough to make to, to mm. possibly do that. I mean, it's like the pipeline. You know, it's like eh, it just don't seem like that's really reasonable that that amount of money. Um, you know, may, maybe I, I I don't think big enough. But but so that that's the problem with the compensation is is like there is is there going to be enough money? Um, you know, 
the smart money might be get paid now because they might spend it all and you know, there's not going to be any money later. I don't know. It's, it, it's is a, this is a really, really complex problem and human beings have to solve it. Is there any reason to be optimistic? Do, do you have, I mean, you're in Boulder. I assume you're working on this issue in general. Do you have, do you have hope? Do you have hope that there is a solution of some kind? Well, there is a solution. It's just right there in front of us. I mean, you know, we could curtail agriculture majorly. We could also, you know, urban should do their share, but it's going to be, you know, ultimately a smaller component of it. Um, you know, and and we should we need to do it in a way where, you know, preferably you don't completely sever water from the land, you know, uh, and and you do it in, in a way that 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 makes people whole and compensates them for it. Um, you know, the problem is we don't have a lot of time. And so and so that we had some time, you know, to think about this over the last few years. And, you know, we had a lot of posturing and, you know, there was there's a lot of meetings and discussion, but not a real lot of serious action about how to do it. Now it's going to come in a more painful manner um, and it may not be left up to people in the way that they would like. Uh, and so that's, it, it, we're, we're in for some interesting times. I do have hope. I do have hope because, because there, we have, we have a strong infrastructure system itself. And so if we're able to manage our political system and just simply withdraw, you know, stop withdrawing the water and manage that political decision not to do that and, and, and the consequences of that, I do think we can, we, there's a hope for stabilizing the reservoirs. I'm not sure we can refill the reservoirs, but if we can establish a stabilized level, then everyone has to learn how to live on the hydrology of the time of that year. And that means you upper basin may have to use less water than, you know, and you, and you certainly are not going to have the aspirations. The, you know, the, the, you thought you were going to have more water withdrawal. No, what you have now is all you're getting. Um, whether I don't know whether they would have the chutzpah to cut off the program. You know, there's a few projects that are already underway. They started digging for you know new extractive projects here in Colorado uh, mm. and possibly elsewhere. That would be pretty painful for them to say stop, stop, you know, stop that reservoir expansion, stop that that Trans Mountain diversion. But if they did that, it would be a really strong statement about of how serious the, they are. Um, and it might be within the, their power to pull a permit or something um, like that. It's very interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what, what is going to happen or, how, or exactly how it's going to happen, but I do know that we're going to have to all have to, to mind our water use a lot more. Well, and I guess also, I mean, you're living in Colorado, so in some ways you're, you're sort of your chips are on the table in that, in that regard too. Um, 30% of Boulder's water comes from the Colorado River underneath the mountains. 50% of Denver's water comes from the Colorado River under the mountains. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the front range in Colorado is heavily dependent on the Colorado River. I think to a degree that a lot, many people haven't, haven't realized up until this, this point. So it could be a wake-up call for the front range, too. Yeah. Uh, Peter, before I let you go, um, tell us how you got into water, because I know you have an interesting backstory about, about how you got here in the first place. So now we've talked about the doom and gloom. Let, let's just talk about how, how, how is it that you got into this particular field a long time ago before anybody was worrying about it the way people worry about it today? Yeah. Well, so I went to Oberlin College and I was an anthropology major, cultural anthropology. 
And I was fortunate enough to win a scholarship or fellowship, actually, upon graduation to go and teach in India. So I, uh, I left to, to live in South India uh, for two years um, right after college. And I ended up living in South India for four years. Um, where I, so I, I did two years on this fellowship, and then I worked for the University of Wisconsin for their college year abroad. And it was really while living in Tamil Nadu, India, that I started to pay attention to water issues. And, and it really, you know, it sort of opened my eyes. I think it's been right in front of me here in, in Boulder, too. But, but it opened my eyes to the significance of water. And at that point in my career, I was thinking that I might like to work in international development. And I wanted to get a technical degree, you know, so I have something to contribute. I wasn't, you know, uh, you know, I have some knowledge. So I came back to the University of Colorado um, in to get a master's degree in civil engineering. So even though I had an undergraduate degree uh, in, in arts and sciences, I was able to do a master's degree in engineering. It took me three years. I had to take some background courses. And then it took me an even longer period of time after that to, to earn my professional engineering license. But that's how I, got, I eventually got into uh, the, the water world while I was uh, doing uh, my master's degree, I decided I wanted to work on a research project and do a thesis rather than a coursework option. Mm -hmm. And so I knocked on some doors and eventually a professor said, sure, I think I have a project for you. And he, and he introduced me to a guy who was working on a project in the city of Boulder where they were installing these devices called data loggers, which is basically a recording device and attaching it to the water meter. And then what it did is that as water flows through the meter, um, the recording device would record the flow every 10 seconds. And because we recorded it every 10 seconds, you got this very detailed, what we call flow trace that, that basically shows, you know, how the water is going into the home. And then we were developed a software program that disaggregated it into toilets and clothes washers and uh, irrigation and all the different ways that people use water. And so I began researching uh, residential and then non-residential water use in the United States um, using this, this uh, technology and ended up authoring a um, number of large uh, research studies, the residential end uses of water, um, as well as a, a variety of other reports. So that's, that's, and that's how uh, eventually I found my way as, uh, at the Supreme Court was through, through, really through working with water utilities and doing research and planning uh, uh, for, for, um, you know, urban water supplies that in, include water conservation. I wonder what, were there any lessons particularly from your time in India that still stick with you today or, or things that you saw there that still, because I mean, India arguably, I mean, let's not say the most, one of the most water stressed countries in the world, they make our water policy look positively forward thinking and progressive based on the way that they've been like churning through their water resources as well. But did you take anything away from that experience or anything that you still carry from that experience that informs the way you look at these things today? Very much so. So the first thing that, that I was really surprised to learn was that, that very few people, even in cities, were on a public water supply system. So, so, and let's say you all were fortunate enough to be on a public water supply system. In most cities in India, the water is not 24 seven. Uh, the water would only be provided typically a few hours a week. Uh, and what would happen then is 
you know, your essentially water would be turned on to your portion of town for, you know, between two and four o'clock on Saturday afternoon or whatever it is. Everybody in that then knows it's going to happen and is ready. They open up every tap in the house and you have a bucket and a basin. You are filling up everything you can. You also have a roof tank, too, that you're trying. You're trying to store as much water as possible for during that two hour period. Uh, and then you rely on that. Um, and then when that runs out, there is a truck uh, that w might come by that where you can fill up uh, uh you know, a pot or something like that. That's that's people who are fortunate enough to be on an urban water supply. So then there's a, was a huge number of other people who who just weren't on any kind of a uh, urban system. They dug. They had their own well. They mm -hmm. and and so this is actually wealth. The wealthier people tended to be maybe more in the uh, suburban outlying areas. They drilled their own wells. Um, in some places, that's fine, actually. The groundwater was pretty low, and the monsoon, and there was a lot of moisture, a fairly regular water supply. Occasionally, you had to deepen the wells. Not too bad. But as the population grows, the wells are getting deeper and deeper and deeper. In some places, it is absolute groundwater mining along the lines of what we're seeing in the United States, you know, where, where you have these super deep wells, and you're mining ancient groundwater. If the groundwater is being replenished, you know, regularly, it's not a big deal. Then, then, then that's what you want um, to use. But if it's ancient water, you know, thousands and thousands of years old, that that is not a renewable water source. And that's where India is going to really uh, bump into problems. Um, they use way less water. That's the other thing that I take with me from India, is that you know, we, we I, I've I've worked my entire career to try to reduce. American water use, and we've got it down from 69 gallons per person per day for indoor use, down now to closer to 45 or maybe even 42 mm -hmm. gallons per person per day. You know, that's through efficient toilets and clothes washers and dishwashers and low flow shower heads and, you know, and, and things that then they've really worked. People in India rely on so much less water. I mean, so, so. It is possible. I mean, you know, and maybe it's not the world that we want uh, to live in, but human beings have proven the ability to survive uh, with way, way less water. And so I'm, I take a lot of optimism from our ability to adapt. I don't think it's, it's hard and, and it's not something that we necessarily want to think about, but we can do it. We can use less water. We can have a good life uh, and use less water. Um, you can have a nice landscape, I think, and and use less water. I think I think there's a whole uh, future in the Western United States of landscapes that rely mostly on available precipitation, and you know, in some years they're gorgeous, and some years they're not as good. Uh, and 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 you know, but there's like that's a cultural change that's required to get there. But I but I'm optimistic. You know, when the, we're not going to have any choice. Uh, we, we've dealt ourselves a hand with climate change, you know, where the, the chances of, of, you know, seeing these really wet years, these rescue years, is, is very, very slim. The, the, the real chances are that it's going to be hotter and drier and that the, the summers, the hot summers that we're living through now are really the coolest ones that, of the rest of our lives. So, you know, if that is, you know, the, the, the much more likely future, you know, then, then we really are going to have to accept uh, adaptation if we want to keep living, in, especially in, in a lot of parts of the Western United States. I contend that a lot of people may decide they want to move. I think some people may just 
decide, you know, it's too hot in Arizona. It makes a lot more sense for me to live some, you know, closer to the Mississippi, where the pipeline could be a lot shorter. Uh, you know, so we'll see. Uh, I, I, I think within our lifetimes, we may see some some surprising population swings related to water supply. Maybe, uh, or, you know, maybe we'll be able to to conserve, you know, and to curtail ourselves into into some sort of a stasis that that's uh, manageable. But we can't. We're definitely not going to be able to just to grow gangbusters. Um, you know endlessly into the future it is a limited resource something's got to give yeah well if, if arizonans are thinking about moving to on the mississippi i would just say make sure that you account for the fact that the mississippi will probably hop into the atchafalaya here at some point and wipe out a large amount of the things that are underneath it and it's a measure of how much i love my wife that i let her kidnap me and bring me here down to new orleans but i'm looking forward <laughs> to, to my front row seat for it all but that's a topic maybe for next time i can, I can that is yeah the uh, a human being's inability to accept the reality of the floodplain is a whole other question that we talk <laughs> well about. how about how about we leave that one for next time and hope that you'll come back peter and thank you so much for for your time. I really appreciate it. Jacob, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at cognitive.investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.